Welcome to Stripping the Dipping. You're joined by usual dynamic duo of the brilliant F1 Black and AMG Dent, aka the MDA, Motorsports David Attenborough. Before I'd add that one in there. And just like David Attenborough, we've been exploring the world of motorsports, more different perspectives, high and low. And with this being episode seven of our summer shutdown series, there's no difference as we have a great 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 guest on today i hope our listeners will be very excited as we are to introduce a professional touring car driver a driver coach and a design engineer as well it's the marvelous mike ogren mike how are you keeping and are you currently joining us from tampa florida if that's correct yeah that's uh that's all pretty accurate i am doing excellent thank you guys for uh, for having me on here very excited for it and yeah, I am. Uh, I'm in the Tampa, Florida area, uh, Dunedin specifically. So uh, just outside Tampa, pretty. Uh, just moved to a new home, uh, pretty close to the beach. I'm pretty excited about it. Ah, oh, that's brilliant, man! And we got so much to explore about you as well, Mike. Kind of your like career as well, the work you've done for Nissan as well, which is really exciting. And also as well, um, whilst we know that you're in Tampa at the moment, um. Could you just tell us about like growing up and kind of your earliest motorsport memories? If I'm correct, um, the internet, so I'm going to blame the internet for this, for <laughs> saying that you grew up in um, Detroit, Michigan. Is that correct as well? Uh, close. So uh, I actually grew up uh, back here in the Tampa, Florida area. Um, so oh. I kind of moved back to where I grew up. But I did spend about six years in uh, the Detroit area um, as a design engineer for Nissan. Uh, you got that part right. Um, but I will, uh, a quick update on that. I actually stepped away from that position earlier this year. So I uh, need to make an update on the, uh, the, the search <laughs> result for my, uh, <laughs> my status. Um, yeah, but no, no doubt there, Mike. And, you know, thank you for that update too. You know, what we like to do with all the guests as well, this is like an icebreaker is, yep. you know, you mentioned growing up in Tampa and just yep. kind of your kind of relevant work experience and stuff like that too. Could you kind of give us insight into the beginning of your journey? Like, what were your earliest motorsport memories growing up? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I was uh, I was pretty lucky. Um, as a little kid, my dad uh, worked at and, and owned a uh, an auto mechanic, uh, you know, repair shop. Uh, did a lot of race car stuff there. Um, so I was around, you know, cars and race cars specifically from a pretty early age. Uh, and I got into a go-kart uh, when I was, you know, uh, very, very young. Uh, you know, probably don't want to say the exact number because i don't think my mom still knows exactly what that age was so um but you know just just running around out back of the shop when i was i don't know four years old or something like that um and then kind of progressed into into racing carts um you know and then uh moved up into autocross competition you know as soon as i could got my racing license as early as i could uh for road racing um i think before i had my street driving license even um did a little bit of circle track stuff uh, when I was in uh, high school um, and then, you know, progressed up into amateur racing and been very fortunate the last few years to be uh, to be doing pro racing stuff and, and SRO and IMSA a little bit. Um, and as far as, you know, kind of just some other, you know, like you said, being very fortunate to be in Florida. Um, you know, I remember going to the Sebring 12 hour as, as a kid and, um, you know, watching those are kind of when when Audi was dominant, right? The the R8 and the R10, the R15, those LMP1 cars, and that kind of helped me, you know, fall in love with the the technical side of it and the just incredible capability of, you know, what you get to watch racing cars and and just the whole, uh, you know, what an incredible event. If you've never been to the Sebring 12 Hour, it's uh, 
it's pretty awesome. Uh, just a huge, huge party all weekend and, and a pretty amazing motorsport spectacle. Absolutely. And, and Black, I'll tag you in as well. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Sebring there, and uh, hi, hi, it's good to good to meet you, uh, F1 Black here uh, from Twitter. I was on your YouTube channel. You can blame me for the bad research, uh, <laughs> looking at your LinkedIn. Yeah, no. uh, but seeing you, uh, your highlight video uh, around Sebring, uh, watching you sort of crossed up, uh, like <laughs> overtaking cars, uh, really sort of on the edge of grip. It looks fantastic. Uh, so I'm looking forward to getting into that with you uh, today. Um, you talked a bit about your journey into motorsport. Um, I expect you're also a huge fan of the sport itself. And I wonder what your first memory is of watching motorsport and, and whether you had any idols growing up. Yeah, it's it's a good question. Um, and I'm glad you touched on Sebring because it's, it's my home track. I could talk about it all day. I got a lot of thoughts on, uh, on that. But yeah, um, as far as watching, like I said, going to the Sebring 12 hour in person was, was pretty formative, um, for me. Um, of course, you know, I watched on, on TV as, as much as I could. Um, and you know, we, we all consider kind of F1 the, the pinnacle. Um, but I actually didn't watch so much F1 growing up that I can remember. Um, and then kind of by the time I got into it, it was, Oh, Lewis is, is just going to win again. Um, so it wasn't so, so interesting to me, which is, uh, you know, a little bit backwards, especially from the, um, you know, the technical, it's just incredible technical achievements that Formula One cars are capable of. Um, and as far as uh, kind of idols or heroes for, for racing, um, this might sound a little silly, but I, I kind of fall in love with the cars more so than any particular driver. Um, like I said, watching, I don't know, an Audi LMP car go through turn one at Sebring, you know, in the dark, uh, those diesel cars, especially, they're almost silent. Um, you just see them coming and then they disappear, barely slowing down for turn one, going, I don't know, 130 miles an hour, something like that. Uh, and you never mm. even heard them coming. Um, it was just incredible, uh, the aerodynamics and, and the grip that that was, uh, that they were capable of. So I, I don't know if that's, it kind of answers your question, or maybe a non-answer to your question, but I, I, I'm a real kind of nerd for the, uh, the cars and, and what we get to, you know, operate when, when we're out there on the racetrack. No, absolutely. And, um, you know, again, while I was doing my uh, research, AKA internet stalking, uh, <laughs> something your website said that was particularly sort of, it really uh, stood out was you were talking about your, your passions and if, uh, the sort of engineering side and the cars, uh, and the technical side of your passions, then having the day job and the, and the hobby in the same space must be fantastic. Um, what are you, what are you driving or what are you racing at the moment? Um, if you don't mind me yep. asking. Yeah, certainly. So, um, yeah, so I'm racing the, uh, in SRO competition, I'm doing a partial season with the, uh, Skip Barber, uh, racing team. Um, it's also who I happen to instruct with quite a bit. It's the Skip Barber racing school. Um, but as part of their operation, uh, they run a few Honda civics. Um, so both some, some civic SIs and some civic type R's in the TC and TCA uh, classes of SRO competition. So uh, I had the, uh, the privilege to race the Type R TC car at Sebring last year, and then I'm racing the uh, SI TCA car uh, this year at, uh, at a couple of rounds, including Sebring uh, next month. So I'm pretty excited about that. So these cars are, you know, kind of the, I don't know, the, maybe the easiest entry step into into the professional racing world. Um, I mean, yes, they're, they're a proper, you know, factory race car from Honda. You can buy them right from 
HPD, uh, Honda Performance Development Turnkey, ready to go. Um, and they're mod- you know, the engine is actually, uh, it's a stock engine. Um, of course, mm. the, the usual racing modifications are made, suspension, you know, slick tires, some brake updates, uh, stripped out roll cage, that kind of stuff. But it's, it's pretty neat that, you know, you've got a class that I believe everything is, is effectively stock powertrains with a couple of different tunes available um, for BOP, you know, uh, give you a little bit more power, a little bit less power across the different makes and models within the class. Uh, but yeah, that's that's what I'm up to right now. And then additionally, I also have, uh, I think the video that you referenced is from a, a Volkswagen Scirocco, so an old uh, old hatchback uh, Scirocco that uh, uh, my dad actually built originally a long time ago, and then I bought it back uh, again when I was in college uh, from, from another owner. Um, <laughs> so that car is actually much more extensively modified. Um, basically, the only stock remaining component is the, the displacement of the engine uh, is limited uh, to, you know, stock displacement, but it's, you know, increased compression, welded differential front wheel drive car, which is a pretty, uh, pretty wild experience, um, you know, full suspension, all, all that kind of stuff, engines tuned. Um, but yeah, that, that car has been in uh, kind of a family endeavor for a long time. Um, so I get, I get the, the good fortune of racing uh, both of those uh, this year. I love that uh, you said your dad um, sort of put that car together and then you mm. brought it back off someone. It was almost like keeping it, bringing a family, lost family member back in or, or, or something. I don't know. If it's yeah, that's like exactly that. right. It was it was a pretty cool to, you know, kind of stumble back across that car and then uh, bring it back and, and bring it back up to speed. Well, look, uh, I've got one more question and then I'll hand to Denz. Uh, when I was watching you race that uh, Scirocco and... Um, uh, you know, you mentioned you've been in, in the family for a while. Um, the one thing that really stood out was when you're braking into a corner, the engine, you know, you've got full engine braking and, and it was like ear piercingly loud. It was fantastic. Um, how, how long, how, how many miles uh, do those engines tend to last? Uh, in, in the UK, there's a comedy called Only Fools and Horses and there's a character that's known not to be very intelligent. And he gets an award after using the same broom for 30 years. And he says uh, it's had uh, 17 different handles and, and 10 different heads, uh, not realizing it's a completely different thing. So tell, tell us on this Scirocco, how long does the engine last? Do you have to replace the parts quite frequently? It's, it's, it's pretty resilient. I'd say we, we rebuild the engine uh, maybe once a year. So it'll go through most of a season, you know, if we're uh, pretty gentle with it. Um, I think that the car is inherently pretty loud. So it may, maybe makes it sound a, a little more uh, violent than, than I hope that it is. Um, but it, like I mentioned too, with that car, it's, it's got a welded uh, differential in the front axle. So I imagine, you know, a lot of uh, maybe you guys and listeners are pretty familiar with a limited slip differential, um, but welding it means it's, it's, you know, fully, uh, the wheels are basically locked together. So if one wheel's turning, the other wheel's turning at the same speed, um, no matter the, uh, uh, the speed of the car. So some cars have kind of a, you know, whether you're on power or off power, they'll change, uh, how much those wheels are locked together and kind of a mechanical limited slip, but this car's welded. So what that means is you kind of have to give up a little bit more entry speed um, and then accelerate maybe a bit sooner than you would in uh, uh, in a rear wheel drive car, for example, or uh, even a front wheel drive car that's got just a traditional limited slip differential like the Civic that I mentioned. Um, so you have to kind of slow a little bit earlier into the corner, get your gear shifts, your downshifts done a little bit sooner. Um, so I'm guessing that that may be contributing to it sounding a little bit strange, uh, maybe loading up that engine a little bit more on entry than uh, 
than you'd be used to. But no, I, I'll tell you what, even just driving the car around uh, the paddock, you know, if you don't have earplugs in or something, it's it's quite loud. Gosh, um, I mean, yeah, look, uh, no slight to your driving. I, I, I'm imagining myself tootling around at sort of 40 <laughs> miles an hour or something. You were really getting it in. It looked amazing. And the way you were describing me, um, you know, there were some in the highlight clip on its own, which I think is only two minutes, um, there were some instances where you were kind of coming into a corner and then all of a sudden just overtaking cars on exit, which uh, mm. yeah, looked, looked fabulous. Uh, yeah, thank, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. I give I give the compliments as well. Uh, I do appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, on on the motorsport side, on the racing side, um, mm-hmm. you, you're currently in the SRO uh, you, racing uh, your your Civic um, linked to your um, instructing. Do you have yep. any sort of dreams or aspirations in in on the motorsport side? Is it a hobby? Is it a passion? How, how would you class your your time in motorsport? Yeah. So uh, again, a, a good question. Um, I think the simple answer is, you know, I want to be, I want to be, uh, be doing that full time. I want to be at a racetrack as often as possible. And, and you know, part of the, uh, as I mentioned earlier, stepped away from my, uh, my engineering, you know, my nice, stable, consistent uh, engineering mm-hmm. role with a, a prominent company, Nissan, um, to pursue this uh, as full time as I can. Um, so that I think that's a pretty good indication that um, you know, it's what I want to be doing. And I've been, um, you know, doing things on the side as often as possible, racing, coaching, uh, whatever can get me to a track. Um, but it got to the point where, you know, I can only take so much time away from the job that's, that's paying me to work Ooh. every day. Um, and, and I had to start turning things down, saying no to opportunities. Um, and again, as I imagine you all know, in the racing world, if, if you say no once, it's, it's very rare to get a second call. Um, so it was kind of in, informative to say, okay, this is, you know, I, I can be an engineer forever. I'm, I'm, I'm 30 years old right now. So kind of at the, you know, racing is a sport where, you know, you can do maybe later into life than, than most other uh, maybe stick and ball type sports. Um, but again, if, if you want to really pursue it at the high level, um, you know, there, there is maybe a little bit more of a time cap or an age cap uh to be very very good at it so kind of decided you know i'm very fortunate to have a supportive wife uh who has grown to love motorsports and uh we kind of made the decision together to say hey let's go jump in the deep end and and see uh where this takes me so uh that decision was on april 1st of this year so i'm only about four months into uh you know being a a quote-unquote full-time uh, driver and instructor, but uh, it's it, it's been very rewarding so far, and I want to continue growing with that, right? I want to be, you know, I want to drive in the Sebring 12 Hour. I want to win the Sebring 12 Hour. Um, you know, we have aspirations. My wife and I have running our own team at at a very high level, IMSA, uh, SRO, that kind of stuff. Um, with kind of the knowledge that we have, uh, you know, she's a a very uh, talented marketing uh, marketing individual, and that's you know a pretty good combination when you have a, a marketing logistics expert paired with a, a technical uh you know and driving uh, expert uh, hopefully we can make some good things happen so uh yeah we, we want to be at the top of uh of the sports car world gosh that's um you know i i hadn't realized that we were you know possibly one of your first interviews since you made that life-changing uh, decision and yeah chasing certainly. dreams is something that you know we, we we talk to a lot of people here and we had a surfer on actually in the last episode that we published um, okay. and um, it's about people following their dreams. And so it's really inspiring to hear that. Um, 
Chip Ganassi, that's got a sort of sound to it. Roger Penske, you know, these, uh-huh. these big teams. Um, are you are you uh, MO Motorsport? What's your are you coming up with a team name? Is your wife is your wife uh, looking at that? Yeah, so Mo Motorsports has been the uh, you know nice. kind of the, the the branding that we came up with a couple of years ago when I ran uh, my first pro season, which was the uh, the Micro Cup up in Canada. Um, so mm. I don't know how familiar you, you all might be with that, but um, you know we again that was kind of the first pro endeavor that we took on. Um, and decided, yeah, we got to brand this out. And that's what we came up with. So, so far, that's been pretty good. Um, and yeah, the micro is really interesting. That's a car that uh, I think is available in, in the UK and in Europe, but not in the States. Mm. Um, so racing that car in, in Canada was, was, uh, was pretty neat, you know, racing a car that you can't even drive, uh, you can't even buy in uh, where I lived. <laughs> so, yeah, the, and the micro is, is a car that in the UK is, is hugely popular. It's been around for several generations. I hadn't realized it isn't available in the states is it available in canada like why would they have it a is racing series? so okay. so uh so the car is again working at nissan i got pretty uh pretty good insight into this the cars are made uh in mexico you can purchase them in mexico they also ship mm. them to canada you can purchase them in canada so they're shipped through the united states to canada but you cannot buy them in the united states it's pretty fascinating um I think the the concern was that they would take away from uh, Versa sales, another kind of small hatchback uh, mm. that Nissan Nissan makes and sells. But I don't know. The micro is an absolute riot to race, and that that series is a, a really good time. And the, the tiny cars. I mean, in general, you know, oh yeah, uh, very small, from a US yeah. perspective. Um, right. So you know, adding to my list of um, you know searching you on the internet, uh-huh. I think my research suggests you're quite tall for a racing driver. Yeah, um, yeah. Does that affect it? Foot, you know, if you're a, it? Yeah. Well, every man uh, exaggerates a little bit, don't they? But uh, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, does that affect it when you you've got a car that's stripped back, every sort of ounce of weight reduced? Um, how how does that affect you in in that sort of racing? Or, or does it? Yeah, it, it, it's a good point. So um, most racing series, um, you know, the, the minimum weight for uh, the car, of course, you know, the lighter the car and driver uh, combination, the faster you'll be, you know, less mass to accelerate mm. corner and brake is, is always good. But usually the minimum weights are done um, as a combined driver and car. Um, so you'll see like in, in Formula One, for example, you see as soon as the guys get out of the car, they, they hop on a scale before they even, you know, talk to anybody. Right. Um, and that's to make sure that they're combined, that they will then, weigh the car separately and that combined driver and car uh must weigh you know some minimum uh number of kilograms or pounds or, or wherever you are in the world um mm. so fortunately i'm uh, i'm a pretty pretty thin guy um so being tall hasn't really been a disadvantage in that way um but what is interesting is is some cars uh the civic that i'm racing for example with a helmet on um and a roll cage you know kind of lowering the roof line it's it's a it's a tight fit um which is something you, you maybe wouldn't think of, but with a yeah, tin top, you know, uh, touring car, um, you know, if you are relatively tall, the amount of distance between your head and the top of the car can be, uh, can be limiting for, for a tall driver. Um, you know, the micro was surprisingly spacious in that regard. I never had any issues, but the civic is, uh, you know, if I hit a big bump at, at Sebring, for example, I'm, I might tap the roll cage and that's, it's a little strange. Gosh, well, I, I'm going to use that as a guy who claims to be six foot two. That's my excuse for you know, never making it anywhere remote. <laughs> Perfect, you're too tall. Uh, my head exactly. kept hitting the roof. Exactly. That's right. uh, I'll tag That's back right. to Dan's over to you. <laughs>
Oh, thank you there, Blag. And Mike, you know, we've had some really interesting and fascinating insight, you know, into the world of the touring car driving. Also, what it's like to, you know, drive a very competitive, um, you know, Honda Civic with its more like front wheel drive setup and stuff like this, too. Just on the topic, you know, of that like series of racing when, it, mm -hmm. when we talk about like touring cars, so cars which, you know, are road cars but can be heavily modified. But in the same sense, you can flip it the other way around and say you have a heavily modified car that someone could buy. In showroom as well in terms of like you know getting entry into motorsport and being able to race as a driver as well do you find that this is a more cost-effective way of like trying to get into a competitive series yeah that, certainly and i think that's that's a pretty popular question right a lot of people think they want to go racing or at least do track days or get on a track and kind of what's the best way to do that um what's the most cost-effective way to do that and i think you know for a someone that's newer to it you know of course people who are more experienced I, I i love racing cars like that you can throw them around you can be a little more aggressive with them than you can i don't know a gt3 car for example right um but yeah for for a newer driver that wants to go racing this is a car again the civic as an example you can buy it right from honda ready to go and maybe you don't need to go race it at the pro level to start but i think out the door there i could look this up but i think maybe under sixty thousand dollars us which is you know not cheap um certainly but you know it's a lot less than a, a 911 gt3 street car even you know way less um so a lot of people think that they have to have uh something crazy fast just to go on a racetrack and i think that's that's a pretty uh backwards way of of trying to learn um you know if, if you can do things properly and be relatively quick in a in a Civic or a, I don't know, Miata, of course, is very popular, at least in the States as an entry level track car or race car. Those skills all translate incredibly well to, you know, once you start to get into faster cars, more powerful cars, you know, more modified cars. Uh, but it, it's, it's, you know, I hate it when I show up to, uh, if I go to coach uh, someone and, and they show up for their first ever track day and they've got a, you know, a 911 GT3 or something, right? And those cars, like, modern performance cars are, are almost too fast or too yeah. too quick i think you know it's, it's dangerous um you know you've got someone who's never been on a racetrack can easily go 180 miles an hour at at sebring um you know that's that's, that's big speed um and very difficult to correct mistakes at that speed um so yeah i i, I wholeheartedly support kind of uh the lower horsepower you know more approachable cars um for sure as a beginner and i would say even uh, I, I think they're much more enjoyable to race even too um because you can be a little more aggressive the speeds you're carrying are a little bit less dangerous you can you know get away with with being very tight with other cars uh, a little more so than you can uh even with faster race cars absolutely there mike and also kind of on the topic as well about you know the spectrum of different cars and, and racing series and stuff like that as well i really liked that earlier on in the the podcast you mentioned kind of your love of the prototype series you know racing in the imsa and like le mans and stuff like that too and you know you gave me a huge flashback to the days of like the audi r10 tdi mm -hmm. the, the peugeot 908 yep. hdi as well um bentley speed 8 kind of prototype car as well in the kind of new world of racing that we have, um, especially in like the world endurance, Le Mans 
kind of a series there's been a huge emphasis and a push on like sustainable and uh like hybrid styled vehicles um mm-hmm. in the hypercast car uh, class that's been announced as well from the lmdh series to also the lmh series so we've seen bmw porsche cadillac peugeot kind of re-enter into this really interesting um like series that's going to be uh, reborn as well what's your take on this and you know like is it a thing you feel where we're going in the right direction with the um the kind of nature of these newer style cars and formulas is it good that you know it's going to open the door to um you know more manufacturers getting involved in racing or do you still think that maybe it's a, pre- a bit of a premature step and there's probably still other considerations that need to be taken in these series yeah it's that's a that's a very uh very detailed question um but i i think i mean i think you almost answered your own question right out of the gate you know if if that many manufacturers signed up for this new formula you know the, it clearly is has to be a good direction right i mean look at the the top level of sports car racing right now um you've got toyota racing themselves basically right at the the top Mm -hmm. category um and you know losing against themselves by the car breaking on the last lap um which is it was heartbreaking you know at le mans a few years back but um yeah i i think like you said there's something like seven manufacturers that are for sure in at the new top level and uh, i think the work that IMSA and uh, uh, the, the European folks have done to allow, you know, the LMDH cars and the LMH cars to compete uh, on equal in an equal playing field and be eligible in both series is, is incredible. You know, I, I think there's, uh, you know, like right now, the, the Sebring 12 hour using that example again, you know, it, they run two different races. They run the Sebring 12 hour for IMSA and they run the WEC 1000 hours of Sebring. And, you know, like I said, when I was growing up going to that race, it was one race, you know, it was uh, same eligibility. So I don't know if they'll go back to that uh, in that example or not, but the fact that they're the same formula or the same eligibility, I think is incredible. Um, you know, whether or not the, the push towards hybrid and maybe a little bit more complication, a little bit more cost, I understand those are supposed to be, I think, a spec unit. So maybe they'll, they'll limit development, which should keep costs down. Um, you know, I think the the world is naturally moving in that direction, um, but maybe not as quickly as a lot of, uh, I don't know, a lot of people think that it is, um, is, is interesting. Um, but again, that technology, you know, if we're doing it properly, uh, should be coming from the top down in motorsports, whether it's Formula One, IMSA, WEC, you know, these prototype cars that can demonstrate, you know, hey, hybrid technology can be fast and exciting and fun you know, we've seen it with electric cars, right? It used to be, uh, oh, it's 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 an appliance, it's an efficiency thing. Well, all these new electric vehicles that are coming out have incredible capability. You know, way more so than a, than a traditional uh, combustion engine vehicle. Um, and I think that's kind of turned turned the equation on its head and made uh, both hybrids uh, and electric vehicles kind of more desirable, right? It's 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 cool now. They're fast. They're they're exciting. Um, so I think that formula is is brilliant at the top end right now. Absolutely. You know, it's a really exciting time and kind of in a way as well, I think it's going to open up so many more opportunities for, you know, different drivers that maybe didn't get a factory seat before now mm-hmm. to get in with customer teams and stuff like that as well. So it's a huge eye opener. And, you know, I think almost like a rebirth of an entire kind of um, motor kind of sport discipline too, which had oh, been certainly. on the decline. 
as you mentioned as well, you know, with Toyota only really racing themselves. I know that they had Glickenhaus too, but again, kind of, even yeah. though it's an LMP1 car, completely yeah, different in it's... terms of the pace and stuff like that, and the BOP. Right. So, you know, completely different. And also kind of talking on the engineering aspect of things as well, Mike, you know, we, we also mentioned earlier in the show that, you know, you were a design engineer for Nissan. What did that entail? And, you know, could you kind of um, explain to the, the listeners as well, kind of the, the links and how transferable some of that was as well in terms of your racing career? Yeah, certainly. So um, I was a chassis design engineer uh, in the uh, Farmington Hills office uh, in Michigan, right outside the, the Detroit area uh, in the United States. Um, and we were responsible in that office for basically any vehicle that was made in the United States. Um, so that would be Altima, Maxima, uh, the Pathfinder SUV, um, Rogue SUV, uh, among a couple of others, some Infinity products as well. Um, and my specific responsibilities, I bounced around within the chassis department a little bit, but um, I touched, you know, wheels, tires, uh, hub bearings, uh, springs, stabilizer bars, uh, shocks, you know, a pretty, pretty good uh, look at a lot of the bits uh, that go into the corner of a car. Um, and our specific responsibilities, again, for uh, kind of American-made uh, or vehicles that were made in American plants um, was uh, kind of interesting, right? As a, as a Japanese global company, um, and I think this is fairly common, um, a lot of the upfront development is done in Japan, as you might expect, and then that would be received by the American office at some point um, to kind of bring to completion. So we would do a lot of kind of testing of components and finalizing the designs uh, rather than like a clean sheet. Um, and then, of course, um, you know, continuing to uh, improve and develop those designs throughout the life of the program of the vehicle, whether that was making them, you know, more uh, cost effective to, uh, to manufacture or, um, you know, uh, improve reliability in the field, you know, if there's some concern with a particular component uh, to continually improve those designs. Um, so it was much more uh, kind of within the lifespan of the vehicle on the road rather than kind of clean sheet, uh, you know, really far out development. Uh, we're a little bit further downstream than that, which I actually found pretty interesting because you could, you know, I could walk out to a parking lot and say, you know, hey, I designed that tire or I talked, you know, I worked with whomever the wheel company was to, uh, to bring that design to life or, hey, we just changed this component and I know that it's, uh, uh, you know, gonna gonna perform better than the previous one, and I can point to it on a car outside rather than saying, "Oh yeah, this thing that I designed is gonna maybe see the light of day in ten years or something." You know, exactly. You know, and like as you mentioned there too, there's just so many things in modern day car design where, like, either for safety, either for efficiency, either for sustainability of like you know the resources that we have in the world as well. There's so many different considerations that you know come into it, and I feel especially you know you working in in Detroit, Michigan as well motor city as they like mm -hmm. to call it you know yeah uh, i can kind of see you know the links there and the connections and it really makes for quite an interesting perspective as well so thank you for that mike and also another kind of facet we haven't touched like man you're like an onion in a good way yeah. like, there's so many different layers to you as well yeah, man. Good. I think, no, i'm happy to like, happy to talk cars all day long for sure <laughs> exactly but one other layer i think i wanted to peel back with you as well man was you know we also know that you coach as part of the skip barber racing school program as well yep you know for our listeners on this side of the pond in europe you know could you tell them about this amazing program 
Um, what kind of cars are on the training fleet as well? Is it more touring cars? Is it a mix of like open wheelers? And for you, just like what is the most rewarding part of uh, you know being a driver coach? Sorry, I think I lost your your last comment there. Um, oh you yeah, you the... and I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch you. Yeah, no, no worries. I'll repeat it. And just the last bit of that as well was, um, what do you find the most rewarding part of being a driver coach? Gotcha. Sure. So, um, yeah. So Skip Barber Racing uh, Racing School, I think, is the uh, it certainly is kind of the most prominent uh, racing school in North America. Maybe a little bit less familiar to to European folks or that side of the pond, but uh, Sergio Perez, maybe a good example of a, a Skip Barber graduate. You know, we've had multiple Indy 500 winners, a bunch of guys in NASCAR, a bunch of people in Formula One um, that went to Skip Barber Racing School as a, um, you know, as, as part of their development uh, as a racing driver, whether, you know, when they were younger or even maybe further into their career. Recently, we've had um, a lot of folks from NASCAR, um, you know, again, I, not so sure how, uh, how much of a European following there is for NASCAR, but they're running a lot more road courses than they used to, uh, you know, going to Coda, Road America, Mid-Ohio. Um, and uh, some of those guys have come out uh, to Skip Barber, you know, a- as professional racing, you know, NASCAR drivers having years of experience at circle tracks, um, but maybe limited experience on road courses. Um, you know, humble themselves to come out and try to learn how to be a good uh, road course racing driver. Um, so kind of the, having that level of, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, clout or, or, you know, just the, the, the image of Skip Barber Racing is that that's where you go to become a, a proper racing driver. Um, I think that's really cool that we've got, you know, folks that are far into their career still coming back to try to become better as professional drivers. Um and what we currently have in the fleet uh, right now is um, mostly one category of uh, Mustang GTs. So I believe the chassis code is S197. So like the early 2000s uh, Mustangs, kind of the first uh, iteration of the retro Mustang when they brought it back, right? Um, so these are Mustang GTs, which are uh, we run them on uh, a street tire. Um, and they're, I mean, they're, they're just incredible school cars. They, uh, uh, you know, they have a lot of body roll. They have a lot of, you know, enough power to be fast and exciting, but not, you know, not enough to, uh, (laughs) to get you in trouble, um, unless you do something real, real aggressive with the cars. Um, and I think they're, they're an incredible teaching tool. Again, on street tires, you get, um, a decent amount of slip. You get a lot of audible feedback from the tire. So really, really approachable help you learn the limit of the cars. Um, and then kind of our other main category is uh, Formula 4 cars. So we have, I believe now, the world's largest uh, fleet of F4 cars. Uh, wow. Yeah, we've kind of collected them from from other, I don't know, racing series that have gone defunct in, uh, all over the world. I know there are some cars we recently got from Mexico, some from Australia, um, but they're all kind of the same formula. So um, kind of getting those to, to our school spec um, uh, is, is pretty interesting. And to me, you know, uh, they're kind of the, the total opposite of the Mustangs, you know, they're, uh, again, it's a formula car, open wheel, you know, we've got decent aerodynamics. Um, they do everything immediately you get, and they, we run them on slick tires, you know, you get relatively little feedback, um, in the way of, you know, body roll or, or pitch or squat or tire noise. Um, things happen very, very quickly. Um, but, uh, you know, of course there's nothing like, there's nothing like driving a formula car. Um, and, and if that's, 
you know, what you want to do, we have, we have an option for that. So um, the very kind of different schools of thought uh, and how to drive each particular car and, and depending on what you want out of it, um, you know, they're pretty, uh, pretty interesting, uh, very different solutions. Um, we do a couple of other things too. Um, we'll run the, the civics, for example, uh, you can use to go through a school um, and then a couple of other, a couple of other options as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really cool to see Skip Barber, you know, kind of back. Um, there was a, uh, the previous ownership had gone through, uh, some bankruptcy issues and was recently bought about five years ago from the current group. Um, and they've really invested back into the, uh, into the company and, and the image of the company and having it be, you know, very prominent again. Um, so funny story, I was at, uh, Lime Rock with uh you know doing a skip barber program a couple weeks ago and skip barber the man his grandson actually came through our our teen driving program while i was there that week so you know that if uh if the man himself that started the company uh is willing to send you know his uh his grandson back through it it's it's back in good hands so i'm really excited to um you know to do a lot of work uh with skip barber uh among you know kind of my other uh my other commitments and, and things i'm doing on my own as well Absolutely, you know, and they're such a reputable brand as well, Mike, as you mentioned there too. And I, I think it's amazing as well, like you mentioned, just the plethora of drivers and skills and even just, you know, professional racing drivers, which are quite declarated, putting themselves through that kind of training kind of program as well, because, you know, it's one of the top level of schools in the entire world when it comes to, you know, professional top echelon driving. So uh, I can definitely attest to that. And, you know, um, I'm quite familiar with the, with the brand too. And yeah, kind of good, a second good. question, thank you, you know, in, in relation to that too, was, um, Mike, how, how do you keep yourself sharp away from the track, you know, when it's not race weekend? Are there particular things that you like to do, such as like, you know, going back to the routes with go-karting? Do you indulge a little bit in the sim racing too? Because oh, funny enough, with Skip Barber, I know that they also have quite a, uh, a nice infinity with the iRacing guys as well. So, uh, yeah, we see a lot of like, you know, people like myself, um, which don't necessarily have the budget to get into full-time racing, but, you know, trying to, you know, take the, um, the tools available through the sim racing world as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I sim race quite a bit. I'm actually sitting, uh, sitting in my sim, uh, kind of setup right now because it's a very comfortable Sparco seat that I've gotten here. And it's where I like to, uh, kind of do anything racing related, whether that's joining a podcast or jumping on iRacing for a bit. So, um, yeah, I, I've, I've got a, a decent, uh, sim setup, uh, at home. I do a pretty good amount of iRacing. Um, I, I continue to intend to jump into their kind of other competitors to get a little bit different flavor on, uh, uh the sim racing world, but no, I do a lot of iRacing, um, you know, whether it's to learn a new track or, um, you know, just, just to go drive. I, I like the competition for the sake of being competitive, you know, jumping into an official race and, uh, uh, you know, getting practice being around other cars, like you said, and, and finding some nuance of, uh, you know, racing TCR cars, for example, which I've done in real life, uh, you know, how well that translates to that kind of stuff. Um, and then uh, honestly, I think coaching, you know, I think there's an old, you know, saying that, you know, teaching is one of the best ways to learn. Right. So anytime I'm at a racetrack, there's, um, you know, if I'm watching or helping, uh, students, you know, at whatever level they are, it, it kind of helps inform, uh, my own driving, right? Whether that's, you know, oh, okay, this person did something particular in this corner and uh, it was very quick, you know, maybe it was a little unconventional, but it looked really good. 
um, you know, that those are all kind of bits of information to file away. Um, whether even not being behind the wheel, right? Watching other people or, or learning how they approach things is, is very informative. And then I also should have mentioned the so the Formula Four cars um, that I was talking about, and I think you had just mentioned that were added to uh, iRacing as well. Um, Skip Barber also runs a, uh, a series using the F4 cars um, that actually races mostly on SRO weekends um, as of this year, which is really cool. So you get these a lot of mostly uh, pretty young kids that just came out of karting or sim racing, whatever it is, um, you know, racing very, very well, very, very fast kids um, in these F4 cars. Um, so that's part of what I do with Skip Barber is I, I coach um, those guys as well on uh, on race weekends. So I did that at Watkins Glen a couple of weeks back, and I'll be at Road America helping with that next week as well. So again, just very informative um, uh, for me as a driver if I'm helping coach these kids that are at a very high level um you know if i'm explaining something it kind of even even helps me learn as well so absolutely you know and it's so kind of interesting to see the symmetry between like both worlds in in one aspect and mm-hmm. kind of a segue into the next question i was gonna ask you mike is how close do you, do you feel like sims i'm gonna use iRacing as an example and they really need to start um you know giving us that bread as well because we talk about them <laughs> too often on this podcast but this is uh, yeah. bringing it back to the question there mike like we know that with iRacing they take a really kind of methodical approach to building the tracks and the cars into the simulator a lot of the tracks are what we call laser scan so it's not mm-hmm. just like artists like you know making a sketch of the, the circuit but them actually taking some really expensive gadgetry i don't even want to know the price of it man it'll probably be oh, like yeah, 10 yeah. Honda Civics. <laughs> you know exactly you know just to kind of um rebuild and kind of like remodel the tracks into the simulator for yourself, Mike, you know, you've done laps at some of these really legendary circuits. You mentioned Sebring as well, Virginia International Raceway too. How close, in, you know, not really in terms of the tire model, but just in terms of the aesthetics <laughs> and the bumps and stuff like that, does, you know, a sim, a sim kind of a product like iRacing come to the real life equivalent? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I, um, so I listened to a few podcasts, uh, a few of your podcasts, you know, trying to prep for this and familiarize myself a little bit more. Uh, and I think this has come up maybe previously, probably a few times. Um, so my, my personal take is that for learning a new track, uh, it's incredibly valuable. Um, especially if you have a car, you know, TCR, G, you know, they have a ton of GT4 cars, whatever it is, you know, not so much on the, the lower end besides the MX-5 uh, cup car. Um, but if you can get a car that's close to what you expect to be racing at a track, um, and go to a new track that you've never been to, you know, being able to drop into your first practice session at a real track, having turned laps there before, just it speeds up the, the learning process so, so quickly. So instead of taking, you know, 10 laps to learn, you know, just a basic braking marker for a particular corner, it, it maybe it takes you, you know, two because you've already done 100 laps there on the sim and you know it's okay, it's somewhere between, I don't know, the four and the three, for example. Let, let's just say so instead of challenging yourself from way farther back and giving yourself a margin for error you know you can take much more specific bites and much smaller bites to get closer to your final product um, and jump right in the deep end i think from that aspect it's very very good Um, i found that there's some areas vir in particular um, that maybe hasn't been updated quite as recently um, and there's some 
like runoff areas, for example, that are absolutely the racing line. There's kind of some extra concrete uh, and the exits of a couple of corners where you're almost outside the, the you know, kind of curbing um, that you, you must use. And that's not present in iRacing in a couple of places, um, or at least maybe not as wide or whatever it is. And I found that driving that, uh, it actually limited me because I was adjusting my line, you know, to drive the iRacing track. Uh, you know, turning in a little bit too sharply or a little bit too late um, rather than what I would do in the real world. And I found that it, it, it limited me a little bit. Um, but of course, that, that's a pretty high level um, difference uh, where, again, from the, the very basic track modeling, if it's up to date, I think is, is absolutely incredible. And you touched on, you know, like the bumps at Sebring. Um, I think that's one thing that, um, that iRacing or, or probably any sim does very, very well is it, it forces you, of course, because you're not uh, getting, you know, feedback through your body and in the seat of the car um, to use, you know, visual and mostly visual, but also like some audible cues. Um, Hi there, Mike. I think we might have just but also visually, you. right? Sorry there. Um, oh, I think I'm back. Can you guys hear me? Uh, yeah. Hi there, Mike. Yeah, we... right. So, um, so Mike, you know, just to smoothly segue back into this, Mike, <laughs> sure. you, know, you mentioned as well. That I thought it was really intriguing, you know, just to to hear kind of like how, in a way, the the sim had kind of like got you up to scratch to a certain degree with like the track corners, apexes, just getting familiar with it. But at the same time, mm-hmm. too, one shouldn't become completely reliant on it or use it, you know, as the gospel. Because as you mentioned as well, tracks are, are something that are always evolving and they obviously evolve before they do in the sim. And in some cases, if you just rely on the sim, you can then develop develop certain like constraints or habits which aren't conducive, you know, to the current track state. So I thought that was really intriguing. And kind of to segue it back to like, you know, the, the real world of racing as well you know mike you've raced in some really awesome series you know the SCCA, imsa michelin pilot obviously the very prominent sro touring car america series too you know for our viewers at home could you give them an insight into what the average race weekend will look up in terms of its build-up to race day and some of the things you'll do in terms of setup or you know um other approaches that you'll take to, to a race weekend yeah sure so um you're saying from the time you get to the track through the end of the weekend or even before that? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. or you can include um before the weekend as well, because that will give sure. us some really interesting insight too. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I touched a little bit on, um, you know, kind of before a weekend, you know, I, I like to jump in a sim or watch, uh, watch video of uh, if there is any out there um, of that track, if it's something I'm unfamiliar with or a car, a car at a track that I've not driven before. Um, but that, you know, that's, that's kind of the bulk of it. Um, and then getting to the track, of course, you know, you get in, um, excuse me, usually a day or two ahead of uh, on-track activities. Um, you know, if there's a track walk, I, I usually like to do a track walk, um, even if it's a, a track that I know well. Um, I think you've, you've summarized well uh, my comment about sim racing. You know, maybe it's a track you've been to even last week or a hundred times before. There may be something new. There may be a new bump forming, a new visual reference that you can use for a uh, a turn in point or a braking mark or something like that. So I always like to do a track walk. Um, that's usually like the day before practice starts, something like that. Um, and there'll be some discussion, you know, with your team, your engineers, your techs, um, you know, if there's other drivers on your team um, of, you know, what your starting point will be. Uh, and, and maybe usually that should, the car should be set up 
kind of how you expect it to be, you know, when it gets to the track, there'll be some, Oh, I remember when we came here last time, you know, the car worked really well with, you know, the shock set to this and these tire pressures, that type of thing. Um, so usually, you know, we'll just go through that, make sure there's no changes. Um, and then, you know, practice one rolls around and go out. Um, usually what we like to do, uh, at least in the first practice is go run, you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes, come in and check, uh, tire pressures, uh, make sure that they're building in a way that we expect, uh, and still reasonable so that you're getting good feedback from the car, uh, and you're not getting kind of bad data by having, you know, tire pressures be, uh, uh, be off because those are of course the only way that you're connected to the ground. So if tire pressures are off, it can mask, um, maybe a lot of other good data, uh, or setup data from the car. Um, so then I like to go back out, um, you know, finish out a session. I like to get a nice, good long run in as early as possible to understand how the car is going to evolve. Um, you know, as, as grip falls away or tires get worn down, especially in a front wheel drive car. So the civics, um, in particular, you know, over, a so the SRO format is a 40 minute race, um, over 40 minutes, you know, you, you gain, uh, the car tends to understeer more and more throughout a race. Um, so understanding exactly how that is going to, is going to go as soon as possible helps you make good setup decisions where, okay, well maybe, maybe we dial it in. So it's got some oversteer at the start, you know, <laughs> as much as you can with a front wheel drive car, which can be difficult. Um, so that you're, you're minimizing the understeer later in the race. So I like to do that in the first practice. Um, you know, come in debrief, make any setup changes. Um, second practice, usually again, for an SRO weekend, there's two practice sessions. Um, so second practice, maybe do some shorter runs, uh, try to dial in a little bit more qualifying pace. If there's any, you know, very small adjustments to make that sort of thing. Um, and qualifying is, is very hectic in, uh, in, in SRO it's, 15 minute sessions. So at say a longer track of VIR or Sebring, um, you know, it's, those are two, almost two and a half minute laps in these cars. So in a 15 minute session, by the time you get a, you know, maybe a three minute outlap in, you're warming up your tires, that sort of thing. You don't have a whole lot of laps to put in, you know, a fast, fast lap. Um, so you, you have to get up to speed very, very quickly, um, in order to be competitive and qualifying. Um, and then it's, you know, debrief, see where you're at on the grid. Um, usually the first race is the same day of qualifying. Um, so prepping, you know, kind of any, uh, you know, understanding where you're going to be on the grid, you're going to be on the inside line, the outside line, having a good feel for where the start is going to happen. Maybe watch some other races, see where they, they start, see where the green flag is given. So you can get, you know, a nice jump at the start of the race. Um, and then go into the race, see what you can do. Hopefully spray some champagne, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, pro tip is you don't want to spray too much champagne on day one because you got to wear your stuff again for day two um <laughs> so and then uh and then day two you know rinse and repeat make any changes that you need to um often the sunday race so day two uh will be in the morning whereas the saturday race is in the afternoon so maybe there's some setup changes you make um based on the time of day if it's a little bit less hot out as it tends to be in the morning um you know, maybe you'll have a little bit more grip because the track's not so, not so greasy, that type of thing. So if there's any adjustments you need to make for those reasons, you do those, you know, usually Saturday night, so you're ready to roll Sunday morning, go out and, and, you know, try to bring home more hardware on Sunday. That's, that's the very, maybe very basic version of what an SRO uh, kind of race weekend looks like, at least for the on track and, and in between portions. And of course, I like to look at, 
um, you know, data and video in between each session too. I, maybe I should have very specifically mentioned that, you know, again, if you have other drivers that are driving in your class, uh, we all like to compare data, see what one of us is doing better than the other. Um, say, holy crap, that, that guy's going through this corner faster than me. There's no reason I can't do it. Right. So, um, that's, that's, that's how you get up to speed very quickly is having very, uh, you know, a talented team of drivers, um, that are willing to share data is it helps you all go faster together. Absolutely, Mike. And that was really informative and insightful looking into how, you know, at least from a drive racing driver's perspective as well, like you'll prepare and develop and, you know, build for a race weekend too. And just like you mentioned there as well, there's so many, you know, like very like, slight but very big kind of things that impact uh, a way a weekend could go as well in terms of the setup direction you mentioned there as well there's like two races mm -hmm. at two different times a day as well so of course maybe for the second race the track actual temperature might be a bit lower or a bit higher depending on the circumstances that obviously influences the tire pressures which then has a knock-on effect on the handling characteristics of the yeah, car exactly. as well you know, and, and having, I guess, also the skills you mentioned, which you would have honed through kind of like your time and, you know, what you do with the skip barber racing school as well, I imagine is really key in, you know, finding the balance of the car and getting the maximum performance from it at all times. So I found that really insightful. I'm sure listeners will as well. And before I tag my dynamic teammate like back, <laughs> back into this too. I just wanted to ask you just a quirky question just in terms of the racing side of things as well, Mike. You know, we know that there's lots of drivers that have different, um, you know, like um, superstitions or, or quirks that they like to do before a race, before they jump in the cockpit. Do you have any, any like, fascinating ones or any kind of, like, interesting um, precursors or, or superstitions you do before you start a race and before you jump in and put your helmet on? Ah, that's it's a... I'm trying to, th I, was, I knew where you were going with that as soon as you started saying it. And I was trying to think, I, I, I think I'm pretty boring. I don't really have, you know, I've tried to be much more flexible. Um, I found that it, you know, basically no is my short answer, but I found that it, that allows me to have uh, a much more clear kind of headspace. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's a lot easier to have a good race or a good, you know, any, any type of sporting endeavor um you know if if you're more flexible right if you go and say oh well i can't find my lucky socks or whatever right and you're just going to be in a bad mood you're going to think that things sure. are going to go poorly and then okay my plan i'm starting third my plan is i'm gonna you know jump the jump the start i'll be on the leader's tail and i'll be second into turn one well if that doesn't happen then you know you're frustrated um so i i've found you know from a superstition standpoint and even an on-track kind of plan standpoint it sounds kind of silly, but I almost tend to go the opposite direction um, and just kind of take, you know, of course, be aggressive and, and take what's available, but you never know what's going to happen, right? There's there's so many variables that go into every very, very small decision um, that, that I found that it's it's much better and higher performance for me um, to, to not be terribly reliant on, on superstition, that kind of thing. Um, I do always like to be in the car as early as possible. Um, you know, I, I always have this fear that I'm going to like somehow not be able to strap in quickly and like miss the grid and miss the race or something for a really dumb reason. Um, but thankfully I've never done that. So um, yeah, so you, that's kind of my only thing is I, I am very comfortable. I'd rather sit in a race car for an extra five minutes than risk being, you know, uh, risk missing the start or something for, for a really dumb reason like that.
<laughs> sure um you know it's it's never a bad thing like you know to be prepared to be organized you know and i think like you mentioned you know the less mental obstacles you put in your own way or the less kind of like you know i guess things you have to do you know to kind of like get yourself in the right gear to go makes mm-hmm. it a lot more streamlined and just you know a lot more kind of just palatable to just get on with the job in hand so right. I, I totally see that and i think that's a fair kind of point too and uh black i'm gonna bring you back in thanks yeah uh, you've asked all of the instructions uh, <laughs> <laughs> all of the acronyms that i'm thinking what does that mean i don't know but no um uh, I'm going to just ask much more basic questions. Uh, I tend so, so we've had some other really esteemed guests on the podcast as well, and I tend to ask them steal a little bit of their intellectual property. So I was asking Perfect. Mario Andretti, what makes someone fast? Uh, I've asked, um, yeah, it, you know, it, it was he a very simple answer. No, it was quite uh, <laughs> quite complex, as you might imagine. I asked uh, Neil Cole, who's um, a media um, sort of personality in motorsport writ large um the art of storytelling so let me ask you yeah. um mr ogren um when 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 someone like me comes to your skip barber school and you know i've looked on your website and that three-day uh formula school looks amazing um you know mm-hmm. where do i sign up um what what are the common um mistakes or not mistakes common sort of habits you see people have just out of the gate what are the main things you're telling people to to change uh, when they come off the street and 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 come to your school yeah I, I think the biggest one is um is is braking the way that we brake in a race car is the complete opposite way that we brake in a street car so normally you know if you're coming up to a, a stoplight or whatever you know you kind of brake kind of lightly and then progressively more and more and more until you come to a stop right on a racetrack, we want to do the complete opposite is we're going the highest speed, you know, possible. Our first brake application needs to be our hardest brake application. And then we kind of, you know, slow the car down as much as possible, as soon as possible. And then we're trailing off the brakes as we come to a corner. Um, so to me, that that's kind of the trickiest thing to get um, for a new, uh, a new driver on a racetrack is, is, you know, breaking these habits that we have from driving on the street. Um, and braking tends to be a very common one. The other one is vision. Um, you know, again, it's, it's, it's much easier to, uh, um, and that's one that we can kind of break on the street a little bit. Um, you know, see, challenge yourself on the street to see, okay, how far ahead am I looking? Um, so that, you know, instead of something being a reaction, you have much more time to, to handle it. Right. If I'm, if I'm looking further ahead in a race car, you know, I'm, I'm giving my brain better information, which you know, better things with that information. Um, and I think that, again, those are just kind of street habits that, uh, you know, if you're not used to, to driving on a racetrack are, are very difficult to break and very difficult to, to train. Um, those are probably the most common, uh, at least kind of first day type things. Okay. Uh, well, you know, that would be me on day one, but then by day three, you <laughs> Come know, on out. I'll be, <laughs> yeah, well, I'll just mortgage, uh, double mortgage the house and I'll, uh, I'll fly over, but no, uh, I, I look forward to it. Um, Look, another question here, which is uh, maybe because you've you've kind of grown up in you know, in and around cars and, and motorsport, but it, mm-hmm. you know we we think of the glamorous world, you know that that what's that film called Grand Prix with sort of Graham Hill was playing coincidentally playing a Formula One driver, and mm-hmm. I think is it Jim Stewart? All those sorts of glamorous Monaco um, shots and, and and so on. 
is there something you know something commonplace in in motorsport that we as the punter or as the tv audience or whatever is it something something that we would not expect what what's something we wouldn't expect about either being a, a driver or or being a regular member of the paddock yeah i think that's it depends on the level that you're talking about right i think like you said maybe formula one the most obvious example of just yeah high uh, a lot of money um both in in the stands and the teams um and a lot of that's because it's it's the pinnacle of motorsports the highest technology you know race cars in the world um and it, it attracts a certain clientele and business partners that are expecting a very high level uh, of course that trickles down you know i think at the level that i'm at you know maybe that i don't know i, I like to say in between right now you know kind of pro driver but not you know, in Formula One or a factory driver or something like that, um, it, it's 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 hard work, um, you know, and I think the way that I like to say it is, you know, I, I played a lot of sports growing up and, um, you know, going to playing in a game or a tournament or something like that is the reward, right? And, you know, practice is, is good and useful and whatever, but you have to enjoy the the competition aspect of it because it's what you're working towards. So it's very easy to get, you know, for someone like me, I, I, I work my butt off trying to put sponsors together and, and, mm -hmm. you know, whatever it takes to get to the racetrack. And it's very easy to, you know, for me, it's something I struggle with um, to get to a racetrack and go, I, I have to win this race. And, you know, everything becomes very difficult and very um, you know, high pressure. Right. Um, and I think it's, it's easy for me to forget and maybe for a lot of uh, listeners or fans or whatever as well that like, you know, that needs to be the reward for, for a racing driver is, is going and, you know, if you're not having fun driving the race car, you're not, you're not doing it right. You know, even if it is at a very high level, um, you know, if you are a professional driver, you're getting paid, you know, millions of dollars to race a formula one car. If you're not having fun, you're, you're, you know, you're doing the wrong thing. Um, that's, that's even more important. I think at, at kind of my level where it is, you know, it's, it's incredibly hard work just to get to the track, put together, mm. you know, a sponsor deal or a partnership with Skip Barber like I'm doing to, to even have a racing seat is very, very difficult. Um, and being able to enjoy the, the reward of that, being able to race at a high level um, at, you know, a, a VIR or a Sebring or something like that is, um, you know, it's, it's the reward for the hard work. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, re it really does make sense, and um, I, I think it, I would still struggle. I'm I'm naturally a competitive person, but <laughs> you know, I can I can see um, both, you know, that duality of something being the reward. Great, we've got the funding. Um, you know, we've qualified. We're going to do the race now. Um, you know, that being the reward, but equally the the, the significant pressure. I mean, does mm -hmm. that does that take its toll? I've asked other people who've been on the show, like what you know what tips they have for keeping themselves feeling fresh i know just with my normal sort of nine to five um you know i get itchy feet or i get run down or you know it, the work piles up on you it takes its toll have you got any sort of tips for people about how to stay fresh mentally and physically yeah i, I think you know i i'm so in love with racing and racetracks mm. and stuff that it's it's pretty easy for me even if i'm just you know watching from a corner and trying to give you know students or whatever it is on how to improve but of course i, I want to be i want to be racing all the time right i want to be in a race car i want to be doing mm. a full season um so when that's not happening for me or you know you're, you're, you know the sponsor sponsor chase and the funding chase is uh 
uh, exhausting, um, you know, and it's uh, for every, every very small yes that you get, you get a hundred no's. Um, and I've been very lucky to, you know, put together the, the things that I have. Um, but yeah, I, I think for me, it's, you know, if you're doing something that you, that you really, really love and enjoy, it, it's easier um, to, to not get worn down with it, but you certainly still will, you know, there's, you do it, anything for long enough and it can become monotonous or too repetitive or something like that. Um, and I think finding the, uh, you know, for me, it's, it's, it is enjoying those weekends. Um, like I said, I'm running a partial SRO season this year. Would I love to be doing a full season? Absolutely. Um, but, you know, kind of knowing what I'm dealing with this year and being a little bit more content and happy with that has helped, um, you know, not to say I'm not pursuing other things and, you know, starting to look at things for next year as much as I can. But, you know, OK, this is what I've got on the schedule for this year. I want to take full advantage of it um, and enjoy it as much as I can. I, that's kind of the, you know, maybe a little bit cliche answer, but it's it's what I found to be the most uh, the most peaceful for me mentally, if that makes sense. No, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think you started your answer with the kind of main bulk, which is, you know, find what you're passionate about, because it, it does mm-hmm. sound just from hearing your voice uh, that, you know, as you say, standing on the corner, watching people, you know, taking that corner and giving them feedback still gives you that energy, uh, which is, you know, fantastic. Um, right. Talk, talking about health and fitness, but completely changing uh, take. A question that we sure. start, you're going you're gonna to realize I don't ask the smart questions. Uh, a question <laughs> that we've been asking uh, guests uh, is about a particular, particularly controversial pizza topping. I mean, can I check that you're a connoisseur of of pizzas, sir? Oh, who's who's not? Come on. Right. Okay. Yeah. Good. I mean, you have to check. You never know. Um, yeah. So let me let me ask you this uh, simple question: Yay or nay? Pineapple on pizza? Yay. Yay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, so, we have a yay. Uh, I'll give a small amount of context to that. I, so I've been a uh, vegetarian for about five years now, um, okay. which has you know kind of encouraged a little bit more uh, experimentation with pizza toppings. Um, mm. And yeah, knowing that. The, again, pineapple being being a controversial pizza topping, I will certainly agree with that. But we gave it a go, my wife and I, and we we're like, you know, this is, this is pretty good. I don't know why people are hating on it, but okay. Well, you know, I I think uh, I I apologize. Maybe the tone of my voice made you feel like you had to give that context. <laughs> you should be loud and proud, positive about. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say what, what's I, I can't read the room very well. Is that a is that a popular or, or not so popular opinion in in this well, uh, pod here? We, we spoke to, you know, the most famous Italian-American uh, Formula One driver of all time, and he seemed to take umbrage at the suggestion that pizza and, <laughs> and uh, pineapple would be in the same room. So you I know, can understand that, uh, yeah. Yes. I, but, you know, it's not, I'm, it's not for me to comment, of course. Um, the <laughs> fi- final question, and, um, and actually the point I didn't make was, you know, when you were talking about energy and, and, uh, and, and keeping yourself um, sort of, uh, in a good space, it sounds like, you know, you were talking about the team that you form with your wife. Uh, that sounds like a really important uh, sort of cornerstone of, of that as well for you, uh, which which is fantastic. You mentioned um, your your team, Momo Sport, your brand. Uh, mm-hmm. Where can we keep up to date on your progress and, and the progress of Momo Sport? Yeah, so thank you for asking. Um, I'm 
fairly um, fairly active on Instagram. That's it's where I post most of my most of my stuff, most of my updates, and it's uh, at Mike dot Ogren. So M I K E dot O G R E N. Um, that's where I post pretty much everything uh, you know racing related that I'm up to, um, as well as some non racing related stuff. Uh, I do a little bit on Facebook at Mike Ogren Racing, um, and then yeah, we have our our, our website, which is uh, racemomotorsports.com. Um, but yeah, the social media at Mike Ogren on Inst- Mike dot Ogren on Instagram is uh, you'll certainly know more than you'll you'll ever want to know about me and my racing career. Well, we we hope to see um, hope to see some pineapples on pizzas featuring in your Instagram feed uh, very soon. <laughs> and, and on yeah. that intellectual note, I'll hand back to Dens, <laughs> who will help close the interview out. Over to you, Dens. Oh, well, thank you there, Blag. And Mike, you've been a supreme guest as well. We definitely need to bring you back on the show later on in the year, you know, to track your progress and just to see what's the latest, you know, in the world of motorsport too. You've been amazing. Yeah, sure. Thank, thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, this, is, uh, this is actually the first podcast I've been on. So thank you very much for having me. It's been a blast. And uh, yeah, I've got a Sebring race coming up next month. Would love to come back on sometime after that and touch base. Oh, absolutely. Well, we're looking forward to that. And we're wishing you all the best as well, Mike, because you're a stand-up guy, top driver, and we, you know, we're super, super proud of the progress and just your story as well, man. You're amazing. But one last question I wanted to like, leave this podcast on as well, Mike. You know, Let's say, you know, Zach Brown, because Zach Brown seems to be a man offering a lot of people <laughs> contracts these days. Let's say Zach Brown, you know, he pops his head around the door and he says, Mike, I've got an opportunity for you, my man. You could either race in IndyCar, Formula One, GT3. Choice is up to you. What series would you want to race in for your debut kind of step with McLaren? And who would you pick as a teammate? Oof. Wow. That's uh Bombshells. Good question. <laughs> yeah. So uh, my... I, my answer is, is GT3, um, it, but I will say the opportunity to race or even drive a Formula One car uh, would be incredibly difficult to pass up. Um, however, I think kind of a, as has been alluded to or maybe clear from my background, my uh, open wheel experience is, is not so extensive. Um, I just don't think I'd be terribly good at being in a Formula One car. Uh, not not bad, I would hope, but uh not at the level that I'd want to be to be competitive in Formula One, um, but I think a GT3, you know, GT3 McLaren, yeah, that's something I could get down with. Um, and a teammate, oh man, well, there's there's what like ten McLaren signed drivers that are all going to need, you know, for like five seats next year, right? So give me any one of those guys, I'd be pretty okay with that. Awesome, man. I think we might have to um like line you up either with uh, Pato Ward or maybe the Honey Badger himself, Daniel Ricardo. Yeah, he yeah. Manages, sign, you know, to hold on to Oh, awesome. Mike, you've been a star and a legend, man. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, guys, listening to this as well, make sure you follow Mike Ogren on all of his social media platforms as well. Make sure you keep tabs as well on the SRO Series 2 now that we've got a familiar name in there as well. So awesome to see and to witness. And uh, make sure as well that you like, share, subscribe this video. Um, well, subscribe as well, obviously. And until next time, it's been your dynamic duo of F1 Black and AMG Dent, a.k.a. modern-day David Attenborough. That's a new one. But until next time, guys, 
Take it easy. Have lots of fun. Be safe. And we'll catch you soon. Peace.